The Old Testament reading is Isaiah 9-6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The word of the Lord. Okay, thank you for rushing. I like how I said, um, just kind of meet the person next to you, and then as soon as we dismiss, half the church runs. So it shows what kind of authority I have around here. But let's pray for our time together. God, we pray that you would anoint this time with your blessing, uh, with your power, with the abundance of your spirit, with your relentless love. I pray that you would transform this time from something that is more than just information transfer, something more than just my reflection upon this text. But God, I pray that you would speak to each of us intimately and powerfully. And Lord, that wherever we find us, if we're asking big questions this morning, if we have a lack of faith, if we are ashamed of what has gone on in our week if we're worried about what's coming in this week, if we're still skeptical that you can be trusted and that you can be known, or if we're confident and we love you and we pursue you and we've spent our life following you, I pray that in all of these various places that you would step in, just as you stepped in to our world, bringing healing and bringing hope. Would you bring healing and hope wherever we find ourselves this morning? And Lord, we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So most big alien blockbuster movies are about aliens invading and then posing some end-of-the-world type of threat to humanity and how the human spirit elevates itself and ingenuity triumphs and destroys the alien invaders and they go home only to return for the sequel. But Arrival... The movie that came out last year is different, and spoilers ahead, I'm not really sorry because it came out last year, so if you haven't seen it, um, that's your loss. So you can just kind of hum to yourself, stick your fingers in your ears or whatever, but Arrival is this great movie about an alien invasion, at least that's what you think at first. These ships land, and they hover all over the place, not just big cities, but out in the middle of fields, and they don't immediately destroy anything. They don't immediately do anything. They just hover ominously. But obviously, they have this technology that is far greater than ours. And so, the movie has this foreboding sense of eventual doom. But it turns out that the heptapods, these are the creatures behind the screen, they don't want to destroy us, at least not first. They just want to talk. They want to communicate. And the film's tension is not not about will we, as a human race, marshal our military might to send them home with their tails between the legs, to defeat the outsiders. But the tension of the film is asking, do we have the capacity to receive? Can we pause our instinct to violence long enough to try and understand what they have to say to us and to listen to what they have to say. And in this case, 
the heptapods bring a language, a way of speaking that rescues humanity by opening up a new future that we would have never conceived of, that we would have never imagined beforehand. Well, Advent asks, how will we respond as a church and as individuals? How will we respond to the arrival of God on earth, the one who comes to give us a new language, a way of seeing reality that opens up a future that we would have never considered before? Can we pause to listen? Can we slow down Can we hold our judgment in check long enough to contemplate and to consider what He is saying to us? Well, Isaiah is writing to the nation of Judah, which is the smaller of the tribes that split off as the nation of Israel divided after the monarchy broke up. And Judah was rather rather small and not all that powerful. And when they were threatened, they called upon the military might of Assyria to rescue them, to protect them. And this wasn't that good of an idea because Assyria answered the call, but Judah actually found itself in a vassal situation. Shortly thereafter, they were enslaved and they were exiled by this foreign power. And Isaiah brings a message. He brings language, if you will, an Advent prophecy of God intervening in that particular situation. And this invitation will be so great, so powerful, that Isaiah says that it will feel like darkness turning to light, death and dying coming back to life, and hope, hope instead of anguish. Now, wherever you find yourself this morning, whether you're a seeker, whether you're a skeptic, whether you're a searcher, whether you're a follower of Christ, this message has got to be compelling to us. Whether we're willing or not yet to say that it is true and I belong to that story, we can at least consider it to be beautiful, to think about that sort of future, to think about a God intervening in the world in such a way that people would say, this is like darkness turning to light. If you're not willing to consider or commit that it's true, maybe you could at least consider that it's beautiful and that all of us want some type of hope in our lives because all of us see the chaotic, destructive results of systemic racism and warfare and sexism and violence and poverty and hunger. And Isaiah uses this kingly imagery to talk about this idea of a mighty God intervening because who else could hope to render these things powerless in our world and to heal and cure the human race of everything that plagues us? But in Advent, we're not only contemplating the world outside with all of its many problems, but the evil that cuts right through each of us here in this room and through my own own heart asking how can God's love enter my darkness? How can my darkness be illuminated and penetrated by the gospel message? Can my life of dying be brought back to newness and health? Can my anguish over a significant failure or a broken relationship or destructive habits, 
be bent towards hope, even ever so slightly, this Advent season? Certainly, we can all be willing to ask that. Friends, I know that in your life, because I know in my own life that the experience of worry and fear and anxiety and even anguish is probably a more common emotional state than we would like to admit. And as we get to the end of the year, we're likely thinking, will this change? Will this year be any different than this last year? And how is it that even as we race through life, even as we go from circumstance to circumstance and event to event, does that worry and that anguish and that anxiety seem to so easily find traction in our lives and in our emotional state and in our spiritual state, whereas hope sort of seems so ephemeral and hard to pin down and only experienced sometimes? Well, that's probably too much for one particular sermon. We'll have to offload that to another one. But what I do know is that hope has to be cultivated. It has to be cultivated. And we have to take times to intentionally pause to give it purchase in our lives. It doesn't just come. We don't just experience it by accident. But we need to create a place in our lives to give it purchase. And that time, if we understand Advent correctly, that time is now. Can we afford to go on living as we have been? For some of you, life has gone pretty well this year, and so your answer may be, well, maybe. But for many of us, we have significant places, significant gaps in our lives that we need to deal with and that we can't deal with completely on our own. Can we stand another year where our relationship with God seems like just an addendum, something that we sometimes get to, something that brings some level of comfort in our lives, but it's not that vital. It's not really at the center. And maybe like Judah, we're feeling this oppressive sense of these things that are coming in. The walls are closing in. My anxiety is getting the most of me. My habits will not change. This relationship is so destructive, and I'm stuck in it. Will we pause to listen long enough to get the message, to hear the language that Isaiah is giving us? The people, you, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of darkness, a light has dawned. That's what we celebrated in town and at Advent. Do we believe that? For unto us a child is born, and to us a son is given. From the earliest days, the church has used these ancient words to narrate the life and the tasks of Jesus. They have assigned him, these four great names that we're looking at in this sermon series. And as we celebrate in Advent, this child, this son, means that our hopes for our world and our hopes for our own lives are not in vain, that tomorrow doesn't have to be like today. And there's a reason in a global sense to believe that humanity's worst injustices and worst crimes will be ultimately adjudicated. Who could guarantee that? Who could pull that off? Well, Isaiah says only the mighty 
God can do that. Isaiah speaks in this kingly language. A king who has the power to oversee his kingdom and the needs of the nation. But if you read that text, if you heard it, if you listened as Jessica read it, he is also this carrier of divine power. Because what Isaiah is talking about is not just a king who makes the trains run on time and keeps archers on the wall, but that this king bears responsibility for the rescue and the flourishing of your life and of his entire realm. The bringing of that great Hebrew concept of shalom, this peace that transcends understanding where things are the way that they should be. Now, why would the disciples attribute this divine power, this king that's talked about in these four terms, the mighty God, why would they see Jesus and say, He is Him? Well, as we read also Mark chapter 4, the disciples are out at sea and this great windstorm arises and the waves beat the boat to where the disciples on deck are thinking, we are about to die. We're going to drown. They start freaking out. That's in the Greek, by the way. And Jesus, well, Jesus is asleep, calm as a sleeping baby, not a care in the world. And the disciples wake him up, and they challenge him, don't you care about us? So Jesus stands up, and he gets on deck, and he says, peace, be still. We don't know if he yelled it or if he whispered it or if he just said it, peace, be still. But Mark says the wind died down and it was completely calm. Jesus, you see, is standing up as the king of the world and he's staring down the forces of chaos and of death who threatened the lives of the people that he loved, and he tames them. In fact, Mark says he rebukes them because they are an affront to his kingship. They are an affront to his status as the mighty God who has his disciples' care. The disciples marvel, of course, as any of us would. Even the winds and the waves obey him they say. They were freaking out before, but now it says they're terrified. They were fearful of dying, but now they're utterly terrified because they've never seen anything like this. They've never conceived of anything like this. Jesus, to them, is the mighty God. And in this episode and in so many others, He presents Himself as fulfilling that kingly coronation that Isaiah laid out, that he is the eternal counselor, that he is the mighty God. Now, if we're going to move into the new year, more resistant to a life of worry and fear and anxiety and chasing our tail, just like everyone else does, we need something, don't we? We need someone who is bigger, who is stronger than those things that we fear, those things that keep us in this emotional, agitated state where we can't settle down and we can't rest and we can't be at peace. Someone who's more trustworthy, 
than those things that we've used to try and tame the darkness ourselves. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that we are not to worry. Don't worry. And this is one of those instances where where God's love is so transparent behind the command. Some of the commands, especially in the Old Testament, we read and we think, why is that there? How could that make life any better for me? But whose life would it be a hundred times better if we learned how not to worry constantly, if we could tame our worry? Wouldn't a year where anxiety and anguish were diminished, if only ever so slightly, where they were rebuked as not belonging to God's perfect and good world, if we could find a place in our souls where hope could breathe, like you open up a fine wine and you pour it into the decanter so it begins to to breathe, it's no longer contained and stuffed, but it gets room and it grows and it becomes more beautiful, more floral. What if that could happen in our hearts and our lives this year with regards to the future? Could we have a taste of flourishing? Could we have a taste of shalom? In Advent, we are trying to capture that hope and to pin it down, or maybe for some of us to recapture it. We've walked away, we've wandered, and our hope has left us, and so we're trying to recapture it. But in either case, neither ceasing to worry nor capturing hope is really a duty for us. Neither, none of us can accomplish those things on our own, but they're both results. They're both results of knowing intimately the God of hope and understanding His language. It comes from understanding the child and knowing the child who claims to be the mighty God who came for our flourishing and for our healing. Isaiah, you see, locates the power not in your duty and your stick and your ingenuity, but he locates the power in him, in this mighty God. It is he who says to the storms and the chaos and the death in our lives, be still. And it's his voice that we need speaking into our lives. Maybe our task this Advent isn't really capturing hope. It isn't really trying to pursue it and chase it down. But maybe it's being captured by hope. So what do we do? Can we do anything more than just sit and wait and hope this year will be the year that God just pops into our brain and changes our emotions and our spiritual state just like flipping on a light bulb? Will it be this year? Well, I'm sad to say that that's generally not how the spiritual life works and how God enters into our stories But what can we do? Judah was facing down the chaos and the death that was approaching them, and they wanted something tangible, as we all do. We're humans. We want something that we can see, that we can hold on to. And so Judah reached out to the regime, the oppressive regime of Assyria, because for some reason, Even though they knew Assyria's reputation, it felt more real and more safe than God's promises did. 
And so instead of protection, they got slavery. And so what in your life, specifically, what do you spend time worrying about? What do you find yourself in knots of anxiety about? What causes you to fear? And what do you do in those moments to quiet those hopes? Because we all have those things circulating, and we all have coping mechanisms to deal with it and try to dial it down so that it doesn't own us. And you may have to think about this for a moment because some of our defense mechanisms and coping strategies are now so ingrained because we began practicing them so long ago that we don't even notice them anymore. And they crop up even when we're not afraid. And so it may take some time to unearth them and to inspect and say, where do I go? What is it do I, that I give my heart to? What do I attach myself to to diminish and to keep that anxiety, kind of a dull hum? Well, maybe our self-soothing comes out in really harsh judgment of others. And we get that small kind of dopamine drip when we judge someone and we think, that feels pretty good. And I'm going to stay there. I'm going to live there because forgiveness is much too difficult. Or maybe we cultivate this strong outward personality that we are invulnerable. And of course, we don't really believe that, but that's how we present ourselves. Or maybe we stay distant in relationship because we know that in relationships, that's where people get hurt, and that's where I'm found out. That's where my vulnerabilities are actually seen. Cultivating intentionally an awareness to these things as attachments that serve some self-protective purpose in our lives is a huge first step to moving into the new year, diminishing that anguish and diminishing that worry, at least not letting it own you. We can't grow in freedom, you see, until we understand what we're beholden to now. We can't become beholden to the mighty God until we relinquish our control over these things that we're beholden to now that we're looking for for salvation. And if you don't know what they are in your own life, ask someone close to you because I guarantee they know. They see it. And if you trust them, maybe, maybe they'll tell you. Spiritual growth, you see, isn't primarily about acquisition, but it's about relinquishment. It's about turning things over. You see, to find this mighty God at work in our lives, we have to identify, we have to rebuke the tiny gods in our lives that we serve so quickly. But then finally, one more thing. We need to cultivate, you see, that memory. As we go through that process, as we, as we identify, as we rebuke, and as we then replace trust in this mighty God, we need to cultivate the memory of that in everyday situations, that God is not only mighty. Hear this. That God is not only mighty, but He is madly over the moon in love with you. You see, we can believe that God is powerful, but unless we're just as convinced that He is good, 
unless we're just as convinced that He is relentlessly loving personally, why would we give up our tiny gods? Why would we give up our attachments? Sure, maybe they're a little habit-forming. Maybe they're irritating, especially to other people. Maybe I don't know who's in control day-to-day, them or me, but they're familiar, and we've had good times in the past, and maybe they'll come through for me this time. You see, they're, they're a prison, but we know where the walls are. We've gotten used to it. It's comfortable. And to get out of the prison is scary. And this is where we have to realize that all of us have attachments, all of us have addictions that aren't necessarily chemical. But these addictions, these attachments, they don't love us back. But the God of the Bible, the God incarnate, the person of Jesus Christ is radically, relentlessly committed to you and is on a mission to liberate you and invite you to a life that is filled more and more. Again, not the light switch, but beginning to invade your life more and more with abundance and with joy. And we see this. We begin to experience it. We set ourselves up to see it flourish in the new year as we intentionally stop, as we intentionally pause, and as we notice in a daily way our fear and our anxiety and our worry and our self-concern and our anguish, and we name it. And we say not, stop doing that. How dare you? Shame on you for worrying. You're a Christian. Get over it. But instead, naming it and saying, I don't want to live this way anymore. God, could you step in? Could you help me? Could you rectify the situation? To say, God, step into my story right here in this particular place. Let me believe again that you're mighty and that you're good. And what I'm looking for in this attachment, only you can fully provide. And can you meet me in that place of need? Would you say again, right now in this circumstance, peace, be still. And let that empower us to say those very things. You see, he gives you authority to say that in your own life. To name those fears and then tell them, peace, be still. Do we have the capacity to sit still long enough? to receive His answer. Can we pause our instinct to resolve it ourselves? Can we pause our instinct to exclude these challenging voices from the outside that on one hand we believe are for our good, but yet we can't quite believe them fully because they disrupt the control that we think we have of our lives and they disrupt the status quo? Can we pause long enough during this season of Advent to hear Him speaking peace over us? As we confess our faith and as we come to the table, would you try to listen for that peace? It is yours for the taking. Let's pray. Dear Father, I do pray for each of us, for myself, And for this church, that you would give us a life of flourishing. Maybe it doesn't look like what we expect, 
Maybe it comes in surprising ways. Maybe life has to get complicated and messy and fall apart before we can begin to experience you coming in in a new and a fresh way. But Father, wherever we are, would you let us trust you that if we seek you, that we will find you. I pray that you would reveal yourself and your power, your might, as well as your love to each person in this congregation this morning and throughout this upcoming year. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.